Hello everyone, it's January 11th, 2022. So James Webb is now unfolded, unfurled, extended, all those things. It's inching towards operational as we speak, but we're gonna dig into all its little mechanized movements because the engineering is just as impressive as the science. So let's get into it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 341 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, Dennis, you just mentioned something that I'd never heard about, a Blue Origin model that's selling for $500. What is this about? So, Blue Origin is selling a model, uh, 1-108th scale of New Glenn. And uh, they say that it's high fidelity or high detail. Some of the engines specifically do not look very high detail. And mm-hmm. uh, missing is the, the the joke is that the BE4s are not there. I actually can't tell if they are or not. I mean, to be honest, it looks like a nice little model, you know, like it looks yeah. good. It's really cute. Mm-hmm. The upper stage has a magnet built into the, the payload adapter. So you can, you know, 3D print and install your own your own payload. It's a it's a it's a good looking model. I mean, it's not. It's not $500 good, but it's a good-looking model. They look pretty cool. But, yeah, it shows on the Blue Origin shop. So, yeah, it is on the website for $445, and that is kind of a lot. Yeah, so, yeah, they they don't have any photos of the bottom of the first stage. And, like, yeah, you know, there there might not be BE-4s in there. <laughs> uh, Sam Sam asks how much is shipping. Let's let's find out. Because for 500 bucks for, for 450 yeah, it's free shipping. It's free shipping. Hmm. Uh, apparently only uh, in the continental U.S., who knows, because uh, uh, Sam tried a U.K. address, and that, that didn't work. So, <laughs> but, but for Pennsylvania, it's free shipping. I'm looking at the description. It does have one cute thing. Uh, the, I, guess, I guess the different stages are called uh, GS1, GS2 for Glenn Stage 1, Glenn Stage 2. I hadn't heard that kind of terminology, but uh, uh, GS2 also features a magnet that can hold any 3D printed payload that fits in the fairing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, customize your own model. That's a good touch. And I bet you, I bet you this is not aimed at consumers. It's aimed at companies that are going to launch mm. on it. I mean, that's kind of a missed opportunity though, because why not consumers? Because you can charge companies more money. I don't know. <laughs> Part two of Ben's, what we, what we call some... An indefinite series on JWST. <laughs> yeah. I was going to go for like deconstruction, but that wasn't the right word. That's more for like, that's more right. of a, I guess it's more of a literary oh. term. But in some sense, right. this is kind of a deconstruction because you're going into every nut and bolt mm. on this thing. Uh-huh. Just about. You are welcome. Okay. So uh, the, the major steps that happen, let me just list them off and then we'll talk about them. The major steps that happen this week. Actually, let me, let me take one step back. Last week, we sort of left off with, um, the two mid booms being extended. And so this week, uh, they did all the other deployment steps, like the, the major, like motion involving, uh, steps. So, uh, there was the sun shield tensioning. There was the secondary mirror deployment, the aft deployed instrument radiator, uh, deployment, the primary mirror deployment, which is two different wings. So, the sun shield tensioning, um, I, I didn't do too deep of a dive on this one, although I'm sure there are some really fascinating motors and pulleys and feedback mechanisms. But um, the sun shield tensioning actually was delayed a little bit. They, they've been saying all along that the deployment is, you know, event based. We're going to 
stop and do things when they need to be done. We're not going to rush through this. We're going to take the time to, to add extra steps and extra pauses when, when necessary. Um, so in this case, after they got the mid booms deployed, um, they decided, you know what? We, we don't know as much as we'd like about the, the electrical system, the, the power system. Because if you think about it, every time they move something on the spacecraft, there are all these wire harnesses that have to, uh, flex along with that joint. So they, they wanted to make sure that everything was, was still doing well and they knew how everything, uh, what was behaving. And, uh, despite the fact that they said, you know what, we, we could do this while we're tensioning the sun shield, but we want to focus on one step at a time. Despite focusing on one step at a time, they also did a little bit of a get ahead and also used that time to confirm that the tensioning motors, uh, were at the right temperature. But that, that just seems like it's, you know, uh, reading a number off the screen and, and checking your, uh, three ring binder. Uh, so not, not too distracting. Uh, tensioning the sun shield, uh, was planned to take place over two days. And indeed it did. Uh, it began on Monday the third, uh, during which they tensioned the first three layers and then they completed the activity, um, just before noon on uh, the 4th of January. Uh, and that second day they tensioned the last two layers. This was, uh, one of the, one of the tougher motions to test on earth. Um, as you can imagine, it, when you watch any of the videos, all these layers are all sagging under gravity. And so, uh, during the live coverage, they have like this 3d model that they display. And it also showed all of the layers sagging. Um, but I wonder if it was actually fairly, uh, realistic. Um, I wonder if the, the unitized pallet structure that the, that the sun shield was pulled out of. I wonder if it, uh, holds onto the shield a little bit. I wonder if the shield gets tucked in somewhere and, and kind of stays in there during or before the tensioning because the, the tensioning not only pulls, uh, the, the shield layers taut, but it also, um, raises them up. I believe the, the pulleys that each of these cables are on also move up and down, which is kind of cool. Like I said, yeah. I'm sure there mm. are really cool mechanisms here, but I had uh, not lower hanging fruit, but tastier fruit to go after mm. for today. <laughs> this, this is me. This is me trying to show some restraint. So the step after tensioning the sun shield uh, is to deploy one of the radiators or, or a, a later step is to deploy uh, the aft radiator. And so what's really cool is that the sun shield has to be in place before they can deploy the radiator. Um, because the deployed radiator is positioned in such a way that it, it could potentially soak up, uh, radiation coming off of the top layer of the sun shield. It's a radiator. It's designed to transfer heat between, you know, distant galaxies and the instruments. Well, that works the other way. It can also transfer heat from the heat shield or something hot nearby to the instruments. So they, they had to get the sun shield all set up and like the, the sun shield, even though it's, it's pulled out most of the way at that point, um, it's still not quite as good at, you know, blocking heat passing through it. The gap between each layer is actually really critical. I wrote, that's why the shield is asymmetric because heat transfer works both ways, but uh, that's not right. The the shield is asymmetric and 
the upper layers are smaller than the lower layers so that the vehicle can pitch up and down. Uh, if you think about the sun coming up from the bottom of the spacecraft, if you've got this giant uh, mirror array, right, the primary and secondary mirrors sticking out towards the front of the vehicle, the front heat shield is going to have to be bigger so that you can pitch down. Uh, the aft end of the heat shield doesn't have to be quite as big because when you pitch up, you know, the, the mirror assembly is already forward of the axis of rotation. Uh, but then the, uh, the shields are smaller on top so that they can be completely enveloped in the shadow of the layer below them. Uh, even as you, as you pitch the, the telescope up and down. It's, it's pretty cool. Like, uh, this thing is doing a, a big job. While they were, <laughs> right, we, we want to only focus on one activity at a time, right? Well, they, they also built in, uh, another activity while they're doing this tensioning, not only while they're doing the, the prep for the tensioning. Uh, so while, while they're doing the tensioning, they also deployed the mid infrared instrument contamination control cover, uh, which is, uh, I believe it's just a latch that you actuate and the cover uh, springs open on a, on a spring, on a sprung hinge, a spring actuated hinge. After the shield was tensioned, uh, they moved on to the secondary mirror deployment. This happened on Wednesday, January the 5th. Uh, Lee Feinberg, the optical telescope element manager at Goddard describes it as the world's most sophisticated tripod. Um, and geez, it, it really is. This thing is made up of three booms. Uh, with the mirror at the far end of this tripod and it has to get into place. Uh, I, I forget what the, what the tolerances are, but we're talking, you know, like millimeter level tolerances, uh, on three booms that have to be able to fold up. It's, it's truly, it's truly insane. So, uh, there are two lower booms and they are straight and they're, they're hinged at their base where they connect to the tower, but uh, otherwise they're, they're totally static. Those two booms fold up. If you, you know, tuck your elbows into your side and, uh, extend your palm, extend your arms palm up and then bring your palms up to your chest. That's the motion it's doing. Um, so then there's an upper boom and it has a lot of, uh, it, it has more motion. It not only has hinges at either end, um, on the tower and then on the secondary mirror way out in front, like the nose, but it also bends in the middle. So it can, it can fold in half. And if you, if you can imagine the, the shape of this linkage, like if you think about looking at the, the telescope from the side, you have what a five arm linkage, the lower booms fold up and then the upper boom uh, is actually two legs in this linkage. And the way it works is the, the secondary mirror folds up so that the mirror is actually above the top of the tower. And then the, um, the upper boom is fixed to the top of the tower. So you get into this configure when it's folded up, you have this configuration where the upper boom is folded in half with one end higher and one end lower. And so that results in the, the upper boom when it's folded, um, flipping over the back of the tower. And the only way I can describe it is it looks like a hoodie. If you've got your hood pulled forward over your head, 
Um, you could think about a mirror being on your, on your forehead. And then if you throw your hood back, you know, it, it lies flat, it kind of folds in half and lies flat on your back. And that, that's basically the way that this, um, the way that this worked out. That mid hinge, um, so, so there are, uh, five hinges total. The mid hinge, uh, is in the middle of the, of the upper boom and it, it folds through 168 degrees. But it's not actuated. The, uh, the actuator is, it, this whole movement is all driven by a single stepper motor. And that motor, um, is on the inboard end of the upper boom. So like at the top of the tower. So each of these five hinges, uh, latch in the open position, but only the mid hinge is preloaded. This is a really good time to stop and explain an engineering term. Preloading. On its face is a really simple idea, but when you actually put into practice in a high or a, I guess a low tolerance system like a space telescope, it starts to get really complicated. But just like I'm going to explain it, keep this basic explanation in your head and we'll we'll muscle through this together, I promise. So preloading um, is basically the amount of torque that you apply to a nut on a screw. Right. So if you've got like a, a screwed connection or a bolted connection, uh, what happens is you're, you're using that screw or bolt to hold two objects together. The amount of tension that you put on that threaded fastener, whatever it is, tells you how much pulling, it's like separating force you can apply. Um, I saw a really good YouTube video. Um, when I was trying to come up with a good explanation for this. Um, and the idea is, um, think about a hanging scale, like at the, at the grocery store in the produce section, right? You got a basket that is on a spring and the more weight you put into the basket, the lower it falls, the, the, the harder it pulls against the spring. So if you were to put a hundred pounds on that scale, it, it would lower the, it would lower the hooker basket by a certain distance. Well, let's say that you could shove, uh, like a, a block of wood into the gap that opens up as the basket lowers. When you do that, you can then remove the hundred pounds and you can put any weight up to a hundred pounds on the scale. And that block of wood won't fall out because it's being held in place by the spring of the scale, right? That hundred pounds that you put on is your preload force. Uh, if you put on something that's greater than your preload force, the block of wood will fall out because the spring will extend farther than it did for the hundred pounds. D does this make sense to you guys? So what you just said makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So now, so now you just have to apply to, you know, the telescope. <laughs> and that's where it gets a little more complicated, but at, at least we understand preload at this point. So that mid hinge on the upper boom is the only hinge that gets preloaded, but all, all of the five hinges, uh, latch in their closed position. So, um, in this case, the preloading force is going to be holding that hinge together. So if you think about, uh, the boom with the hinge being on the bottom side, uh, then when it, when that hinge opens up, the top at the, the top surface of that boom will separate, right? And so before we get to how it's preloaded, when the, when the top two ends come together as this hinge approaches its, its fully open configuration, it's, 
It actually makes more sense to think of it as a fully closed configuration if you're thinking about it as like a, a, a hinge on a door. You you close the door and the two sides of the hinge are touching, right? And that's basically what we're talking about. So the the position when it's when it's fully closed, when it's in its deployed configuration, that position is going to heavily influence the location of the mirror in two axes, right? Both how far away from the secondary mirror or how far away from the primary mirror it is, but also where it is vertically compared to the to the primary mirror. So so that's really important. So what they do is they have um, a mechanism that anybody would recognize it's it's called a threaded stop and so basically it's a set screw that while they're uh, assembling the telescope they can change how far out this set screw sticks in order to set exactly how far this this joint is able to to close up and in order to make this as precise as possible the interface between the stop and the surface that it presses up against is called a sphere on flat interface. So like the, the, the threaded spring looks like uh, a carriage bolt, like a, like a, a bolt with a round head and it sits up against a flat surface. Like that sounds really simple and obvious, but at least when I'm learning about something like this, I'm like, what in the world are they going to do? Like, how, how does this actually look? And then when it comes down to, oh, it's a, it's a sphere on flat on, on a threaded stop. Okay, great. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> I can imagine that one. Uh, so, so far, so good. Okay. So the mid hinge, um, uses two leaf spring latches. So this is really cool. It's basically a piece of aluminum. Uh, there, there's one on either side. Uh, uh, of the hinge and they basically stick straight out. And, um, when the hinge closes, uh, those pieces of aluminum, these thin, uh, leaves of aluminum engage with, uh, an inclined surface and they go over the top and they snap closed. Uh, they, they go up a ramp and then fall over the other side and they're latched. It's the exact same mechanism. Uh, that you find in like uh, one of those child safe latches for a cabinet, right? Where like uh, if you can open the cabinet a little bit and then you can stick your finger in and press down on a lever and that frees it up and you can open it all the way. It's exact same concept, except in this case, the inclined plane is on the opposite side rather than built into the lever. So here's where we get to the preload. These leaf latches, these leaf springs are made of aluminum. Aluminum, as you might know, has a high coefficient of thermal expansion. Basically, every other bit of, uh, of JWST is made from low coefficient of, of thermal expansion, uh, metals, um, except in a couple of really brilliant spots. This is one of them. So the, the springs, uh, go beyond a latch and then grab the latch from the opposite side. When they cool down, they shrink, and that's where your pretensioning comes in, or the, the preloading comes in. Uh, these, these springs suddenly actuate in a different direction, right? Because normally they actuate in a, in a flappy, flappy motion, and now they're, they're sh shrinking and contracting and pulling things tight. So that's the mid hinge. It has these latches that then shrink and pull back and, and uh, preload this joint. 
The other four hinges latch, but don't apply preloading. And, and that seems weird, right? Like they've got to be built some other way. How do you freeze this joint without preloading it? And it, they also use aluminum parts, but it's, it's a slightly different method of using them. So basically what they do is they have, um, pinned joints or pinned hinges, um, that look very much like, like normal everyday hinges that, that you'll recognize immediately. Um, and th there'll be a bunch of photos in the show notes, but basically the pins that are in there holding the hinge together are made out of aluminum as well. And, uh, and basically as it shrinks, it brings the ends of the pin in towards the, the, the bushing that, that they're installed in and clamps the whole thing tight. So, um, it, it's kind of like modeling clay. Modeling clay hardens when it air dries. These things harden when they freeze. Um, it, you know, it's, they're not exactly doing a state change, but like these hinges just freeze shut. So you have to actuate them at a certain temperature and then you have to let them cool to a certain temperature. And this whole thing becomes very rigid. And like, it's, it's just such a brilliantly simple way of doing things. Does the change in temperature, is that just because at this point it is being hidden behind the shield? And so that's what's causing it? Like, what is there some sort of heat that's added, which I don't think that there would be? That, that's a really good question. Um, there are lots of heated components in JWST. Um, and basically before and after they do any move, they have to confirm that they're at uh, different temperatures, either the deployment temperature or the, the, the operating temperature for like actual science, like are all these different things that they, uh, all these different temperatures that they monitor. And a lot of them have heaters and a lot of them don't. And, you know, the, the ones that don't, they reach their temperature just by moving to different configurations. Um, you know, they stay warm when they're not deployed and they cool down once they're deployed because they've got more mm -hmm. surface area exposed to space. I don't know which is the case here, but I believe it's just, passive cooling from exposure to the space environment. Okay. That's pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, you can tell that I wrote these notes and not Dennis because the last bullet point in the secondary mirror deployment is the secondary mirror is round. <laughs> That's all I have to say. It's, you know, it's a, it's a beryllium mirror coated in, in gold and it's round instead of hexagonal. Okay. Let's move on. Beautiful. Um, yeah, Mike in the chat says, yep, that sure is a mirror. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So then uh, they worked on the aft, uh, the aft deployed instrument radiator. Uh, this was on Thursday the 6th. So the entire radiator is, you know, roughly rectangular. It's, it's a little bit out of square. Um, and it's, it's subdivided into different areas devoted to specific instruments. They have their own cooling loops. Um, and most of the heat that they have to deal with is called parasitic heat. And it's not from the instrument itself. It's from all the other support equipment that surrounds the instruments. The area, the quantity devoted to each instrument, uh, was not decided. The, de the design wasn't frozen very early in, in JWST's, uh, design life. Um, and it, it was just because they had changing or incomplete cooling requirements. Um, and one of the, Early on, one of the solutions they came up with was, hey, what if we make the radiator a modular design so that we can freeze the, the component design, but just move things around, uh, once we have these other component or these other requirements decided on? Um, but like 
it was too expensive. <laughs> it took too much time. So instead, they just decided to leave the radiator design until much later in the process. Uh, and that way they could use uh, more conventional design techniques. The radiator uh, is aluminum panels covered in aluminum honeycomb that's then painted black. Uh, just, you know, high surface area kind of thing. Um, they considered using um, other materials, including carbon nanotubes, but it, it turns out like they didn't even get to the point where they were evaluating how expensive it was going to be. Just um, looking at the design requirements uh, for uh, vibration, for cleanliness, uh, and for performance over mass, um, actually the aluminum uh, honeycomb and the carbon nanotubes, neither one of them actually met the requirements. And we start to get into like material science here. So it's a little beyond, I don't want to say my expertise because I absolutely do not have expertise. Uh, but let's just say it's beyond my interest area. It's, it's complex enough that figuring out how this stuff works is not quite as rewarding as figuring out actual like moving mechanical kind of thing. So I didn't, I didn't look too deep into um, how they ended up bringing this design up to requirements. Um, but they not only had to do like material science kind of things, but they also had to like, like, and when I say material science kind of things, I mean, inventing new structures and fabrication techniques that didn't exist up to this point. Like they had to invent shit to get here, but they also had to invent new testing techniques because the, the error bars on their testing techniques were wide enough that they weren't even sure if they were meeting the requirements once they, you know, had done improvements and things. So like, yeah, they had to invent um, new materials and new ways to test the materials. And that's, that's cool. JWST is a marvel, right? Like let's, we can, we can complain about how expensive it is and how long it took to construct all day long, but ultimately like the demands placed on this vehicle, it's kind of impressive to me that we were able to build it at all. So, uh, that, that's like the whole, the radiator as a whole, the aft radiator is a, it takes up about one third of the height of the radiator. Uh, it's four by eight feet. Uh, and it rotates up like a trap door on spring actuated hinges. And, uh, the deployment took about 15 minutes. And once they were done, we now have a, a radiator sitting at about 45 degrees behind the, uh, behind the, the primary mirror kind of tipped up at like 45 degrees, kind of like a hat that you push far back. But if you push the bill of a hat up, uh, that, that's kind of what we're talking about. Or, or maybe we go back to the hoodie analogy, right? It's kind of like a hoodie sitting on the back of, uh, of the, the mirror tower. All right. Then the mirror deployment. Um, they began, uh, on January 7th with the port wing, uh, which took about six and a half hours to deploy. Then they moved on to the starboard wing the next day. I didn't like super confirm this. I wasn't like, I, I was looking at YouTube timestamps, uh, but it looks like the, the starboard wing took about five and a half hours as opposed to six and a half hours. So go figure you do it once and you get faster at it. Um, these deployments, uh, began with, uh, just a little bit more than a degree's worth of movement. Um, just like kind of break that static friction, move a little bit, and then you can go check all the numbers that you have available to you before you're uh, confident that you can go on with the full deployment. 
uh, and each wing, its full extent is 103 degrees uh, ro rotating outward. Um, and this, uh, if you're not familiar, the, the rotational direction is sort of like uh, if you do the fish gills uh, movement by putting your palms on your cheeks and then flapping them forward, that's exactly what we're talking about. Now, what's cool is the, these things are really big. Like they have three mirrors each, right? Out of the, how many mirrors does JWST have in its 18? There you go. So three out of the 18 mirrors on each of these, uh, on each of these, uh, these flaps. And yet the entire flap rotation is driven by a single stepper motor. Now, granted, it's a, it's, a, a geared movement, right? There are gears inside the stepper motor and then they're interfaced with an additional gear. But like it's one stepper motor doing this. Like it, it's, it's crazy. The flaps each have two hinges. Only one of them has a gear on it. Um, and, uh, the, the gear mechanism is incredibly simple. Uh, it's just the stepper gear interfaces with a gear cut into the titanium lug of the hinge. So like the hinge has got teeth on it and you just put a gear up against it. Each of these uh, hinges has has a, a pin in it, but the pins are loose. Um, and the intention is for these hinges to be uh, used during deployment and then have all of the load taken off of them. Um, and an added benefit of having a loose hinge is that it actually decreases friction. Uh, it turns out, I don't, I don't think it's by much, but uh, it's one, one less thing to worry about. So that basically the hinge pin is snug enough. So the hinge will actuate in the, in the correct angle that it sweeps out and then, and, and no more. We don't need to constrain this motion, uh, uh, too terribly much. So if, if the hinges aren't the things, or if the hinges aren't used at all to keep these wings in place, how do you do it? Well, this, this is pretty cool. There are a bunch of latches on the, the two faces that, uh, start out open like a book and then wind up, uh, closed flat. And, uh, all of these latches are made out of, uh, titanium alloy. The, actually, each side of the latch is made of a different material, um, with, with different, uh, coefficients of thermal expansion. And so that's, that's a problem that they had to solve. Um, if these things change shape and change shape differently as a thing cools, you, you have to be really careful how you, uh, how you design them. And, uh, we're going to use the word DOR a lot. That's, uh, degrees of restriction. Normally we talk about DOF, degrees of freedom, but DOR is exactly the same thing, but negative. <laughs> so, uh, you've got a bunch of different latches and you need to achieve six degrees, uh, uh not restraint, degrees of, of, or de degrees of restraint, not degrees of restriction. So you need to be able to achieve six degrees of restraint. And in theory, you could do all of that with a single latch. Uh, but that, that seems like a bad idea, uh, just like intuitively, right? So what they do is they actually spread each of these six degrees out over a bunch of different locations. And by doing that, they not only spread out where this force is being transmitted, uh, but they also achieve a, a high degree of repeatability. Okay, so um, there are three different types of latches. One of them is multiplied by many, but the other two, it's just, uh, it's just one each. So the, the first latch is called a sphere in cup interface. 
and uh, it, it's actually uh, a bolted interface. And uh, a sphere and cup provides three DOR, right? Like you can imagine the, the three different axes uh, that a sphere and a cup will restrain. Um, to be specific, this is a sphere in cup, not a sphere in sphere. So it's flat surfaces touching a spherical shape, right? Um, Chris says like a hip joint. Yeah, sure. Except, uh, right, right. So a hip joint is a sphere in sphere. You've got a small sphere inside of a convex big sphere. But in this case, we're, we're doing a, a sphere with planes touching it. So uh, for reasons I will talk about later, instead of being a complete sphere or a hemisphere, it's actually a spherical section. So think a, a drink coaster, right? Like a coaster that you put a cup on. That's what we're talking about. It's it's a puck, except the outer surface, it, it looks like it's a 45 degree angled surface, but it's actually a, a spherical surface or a, a spherical section. And then the uh the plate that meets up with it has three planes uh, at, what, is that 60 degrees? No, 120 degrees. And if you think about it, a plane touches a sphere theoretically in one, in, in one point. So the, the planes have, don't have to be that big because um, most of it's not going to touch the sphere. So the, the, the co you got a coaster with a triangle that sits on top of it. And the triangle is a little bit larger than the diameter of the coaster. Uh, the second fixture um, is also bolted. It's a, it's a sphere in groove. So it's basically the same idea, except instead of a triangle, you have a, a rectangle. And uh, if you think about the shape of a sphere meeting like a valley, that's what we're talking about. And if you think about that, you can imagine, yeah, that's two degrees of freedom. So the sphere and cup gives you three degrees. The sphere and groove gives you two degrees, so we're one degree away um, from meeting our six degree uh, of restriction that we need, or six degrees of restraint that we need. So the sphere and cup does three degrees, which locks two axes and then provides one point of a plane. The two degrees of freedom sphere and groove fixes rotation around the first set of fittings and then forms the second point in a plane. So now all we need is a, a third or a, a sixth uh, degree of freedom, which is really a third point in the plane, right? Three points define a plane. Um, so the, the third fixture is a one degree of freedom sphere on a flat. So, so this sphere, sphere on a flat looks much like uh, the threaded adjustable stop in the uh, secondary mirror uh, mid-boom hinge. Uh, it's just like a, a giant, a, a carriage bolt with a ridiculously like a comically large head. So those one set of those three fixtures would get you a perfectly constrained mating between these two structures. And uh, each latch, so that, so there are those three fixtures they don't hold to get, they don't hold onto the, onto their counterpart. They just, they have these mating surfaces that come up and touch and constrain movement. So then on top of that, you have, I believe two latches, 
Uh, I will correct myself if I'm wrong when I get to that point in the PDF. But I, I believe you have two latches and they don't constrain anything, but, but they add a, uh, a preload force. So they hold these two structures together, but they, they actually float pretty, I mean, not a lot, but they, they float enough so that they're not in what's called the, the stiff load path. They're just kind of there. Uh, almost like magnets, you know, pulling towards each other. And, and a, a big part of that ability to, to float is that, um, the latches, they're called latches. In reality, they're a bolt and a nut, right? But they, they don't bottom out. They're, uh, held together by springs or, or rather the, the bolt. Uh, pulls the nut against a spring so that they, they can float and they're never going to bottom out that nut so that they can add this pulling force and let the, um, let all of those plates that meet up against each other do all of the dimensional constriction. Um, and the reason that you do kind of this wild, uh, method is because you want repeatability. If you concentrate all of these actions into one object, that may be simpler, um, but it's going to tend to lock together in a, in a different configuration each time. Uh, and, and so they have to be able to tweak everything on the ground in the position that they want. Uh, disassemble it basically, you know, fold it up, send it into space and then unfold everything and have it go back to the exact same position that they calibrated it for on the ground. And the language they use, I, I really like each latch is preloaded to drive the fittings to a determinate repeatable position. So I'll talk about how this structure is preloaded in a second, but they, they actually add additional, uh, fittings. They're one degree of restraint fittings, um, basically the exact same one DOR fitting that we talked about before. Um, they add uh, five additional ones uh, to over-constrain that direction. Um, and the reason they do that is to reduce jitter that can be transmitted through, uh, through this interface. Um, and to that end, they're spread out as far as possible. Um, they are also preloaded. Um, so they're, they're basically, you know, sprung, uh, sprung pins, if that makes sense. So you kind of pull all these springs tight and get your preloading. When they extend, uh, these wings, uh, they engage the latches, uh, so that they can take the, take the hinge out of the stress path. Um, but they don't, uh, preload it all the way. They just kind of, put a couple of rotations into this nut and then they let the whole thing cool down and come to its uh, operational shape, right? Like it's crazy that this has to be so precise that, uh, for, you know, all intents and purposes, this thing is made out of jello, right? Uh, that a jello that, uh, gets bigger and smaller. Um, so they let everything cool down. Then they back the latches off to ease any stresses that have built up. Um, and then they torque them down to their operational preload values. For these plates, um, they thought about using exotic materials like uh, silicon carbide um, that have low thermal expansion uh, coefficients because the, the 
the back plate that the mirrors are all bolted onto is uh, very has very low thermal expansion. I forget what material it's made out of. It's like molybdenum or beryllium. So, yeah, so so you know beryllium was picked because it has uh, a very low uh, thermal expansion coefficient, and I really should remember beryllium because of uh, what is it space space quest? What's that? What's that one goofy mil- movie called uh, with Tim Allen where they go Galaxy and- Quest? Galaxy Quest, yeah. They they go and get beryllium spheres. Like I should remember that more quickly. Uh, so. The back plane of the mirror is made out of beryllium, which doesn't change shape uh, as its temperature changes. So when they made the opposite side out of um, out of titanium, they had to design things in such a way that when when the shape of these things changes, they'll be able to handle the stresses. Uh, and like, like I said, they, they were thinking about using something like silicon carbide or, or some exotic material, but the, the cost just got out of hand really, really quickly. So to solve that problem, instead, they went with the thin cross section um, so that the, yeah, so the loads wouldn't get too high uh, due to the mis- mismatch CTE. Um, and so that thin cross section is evidenced in is manifested in the puck shape right these these spherical joints uh granted they're only going to have a ring around the the sphere that's actually going to interface with a cup uh with, with you know a cup made out of multiple planes but even if it was a sphere and sphere joint if the other sphere isn't exactly the same size you know you're going to have a ring but uh but by picking this this thin slice it's not going to be able to expand too much uh in the the thickness direction uh and then even though it will expand in the radial direction um you only have three points where it interfaces so it it, it all works out so that's the the thickness is driven by the cte mismatch the diameter is actually a fixed value believe it or not it's the smallest value that they can have uh, in order to minimize the Hertzian stress. So they, they picked uh, a stress maximum. I will explain Hertzian stress in a second, but they, they picked mm-hmm. a maximum value and then they, um, then they picked the smallest sphere that would be under that maximum. So Hertzian stress is going to make a lot of sense. The idea is if you've got two, two spheres in contact, like think about two ball bearings touching each other. Um, the smaller those ball bearings are, the smaller the contact area is between them. In theory, a like a perfectly rigid pair of spheres would only ever touch each other at an infinitely small point. But in reality, uh, even the the stiffest materials actually have some amount of elac- elastic deformation that they can undergo. They 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 smear out a little bit, and so so the smaller a sphere is, the smaller that contact area is. The bigger the sphere is the bigger the contact area is going to be. So smaller spheres have higher stresses applied because, you know, it's the same amount of force applied to a smaller area. So bigger contact area means lower stress. A bigger radius of the sphere results in a bigger contact area. So, right, that's thickness, that's diameter. Um, And then the contact angle between the sphere and the cup they decided it has to be 45 degrees, right? Because you you want uh, equal uh, force applied in, in both directions. Um, and so once you have those those three things set, thickness, diameter, and contact angle, the rest of the design basically designs itself. Like that's a nearly perfectly constrained set of 
a perfectly constrained design space, right? You can't really come up with too many different geometries that that meet these restrictions. Right. So that's the the three DOF sphere and cup. Um, like I said, the the latches uh, are zero DOR. And when I was looking into these guys, the question of how do you not cross thread a bolt in space seemed more important than the idea of how do they uh, have a latch that also provides zero <laughs> degrees. Uh, where's my bolt? Zero degrees of restraint. But once you get one, you kind of understand the other. So the idea is uh, these latches are basically a uh, a stepper motor with a threaded rod on the end. The threaded rod is is tapered down to a point uh, so that it you know can find its way into the nut very easily, and then it has a narrow unthreaded portion uh, that allows the entire you know rod the unthreaded rod. It's a threaded rod. It allows the latch to um, sit nice and snug, to capture the bolt nice and snug without ever having to engage any thread so that the, the nut can get into the right place just sort of on its own. Um, the next step in this, uh, in this whole dance is that the nut is, uh, I believe it's a six-sided nut, I could be wrong, but it's sitting inside of a chamber that restricts its rotational uh, movement. But it's not it's not snug. It, it sits in there kind of loose. And so that gives it enough play that when the latch interfaces with it, the nut can kind of float around and find the right place. Um, so, you know, you don't have to get the the latch aligned perfectly and have the exact perfect rotation. And as far as I know, they don't even have to back the the motor up to, you know, to align the threads. I think they can just drive it straight forward because of the floating nut. Okay. So you've got a nut in a chamber where it's kind of loose and rotation is constrained enough that when you start turning the threaded rod, it's going to actually engage. But what about the, the sliding back and forth direction? Because the, the nut is a lot shorter, um, than the chamber that it's captured in. The issue of capturing the nut on the threaded rod is not as simple as you might think, because remember, this thing is on a on a hinge. And when the when the drive screw captures the 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 housing of the nut um, it from the diagrams, it looks like the hinge is still open a good like five or ten degrees. Um, and these the latches are a good like meter or two apart. Um, so there's, a, there's a really significant like angle that they're meeting at. Um, and so, yeah, like it, it really does take some work. So if you now believe me that this is a harder problem to solve than you might think. So now we can talk about the depth direction, uh, that this nut travels. And basically the, the nut is on a spring. <laughs> It's as simple as that. When the screw turns and actually starts pulling the nut in, it pulls against the spring. And so since the nut kind of floats a little bit, it's it's free to move in all six directions, but it still pulls these two surfaces uh, towards each other. And by picking the correct number of rotations, you can dial in how much uh, how much preload force you want. And, and indeed, right. They, they have multiple amounts of preload force that they select for, uh, during the cooling process. Okay. So, so that's, 
that's deployment. There you go. That's how you build uh, a James Webb <laughs> Space Telescope. So that was a good exercise for me. Just, I mean, we have notes here in front of us in the schematics, but I still had to like really visualize it as you're going along. And that was yeah. kind of fun. You know, it was like, okay, I'm imagining this now. I'm imagining that. But you're pretty good at describing things. So, you know, that's mm -hmm. something that uh, is your strong suit. So I think that we all followed it pretty well. Oh, good. Thank you. All right, so we're going to do three short and sweets this week. Just me and Dennis, since Ben did so much talking, he, he wants to take a break. So, Dennis, what is the first one? I'm going to get a lozenge. Hang on. There you go. Well, first up, Paragon acquires spacesuit manufacturer. Paragon Space Development Corporation has entered an agreement to acquire Final Frontier Design, or FFD, a company that specializes in spacesuits and has a pressure garment system that weighs approximately half of NASA's XEMU suit. Paragon, a leading life support company that has worked with NASA for decades, made the acquisition only months before the Exploration Extravehicular Activity Services, or XEVAs, program will select one or more companies to provide a new spacesuit for the Artemis program. Then next up, KSLV-2 failure is determined. The debut launch of South Korea's KSLV-2 launch vehicle back in October resulted in its dummy payload being delivered into an unsustainable orbit. A result of underperformance by its upper stage engine, the cause has been determined to be a buoyancy problem with the upper stage's helium pressurization tanks, which are suspended inside the stage's LOX tank. The rise in buoyancy caused by the rocket's acceleration led to the helium tanks breaking free from their mount inside the LOX tank. This led to flow disruption of the LOX to the upper stage's engine. SpaceX experienced a similar problem during its CRS-7 launch, which resulted in a loss of vehicle. So this is a very similar problem, but not as not as destructive, because uh, I remember watching that launch on TV, and the whole vehicle literally disintegrated. This was just a, this was just an underperformance. Right, right. Yeah, because the tanks, the tanks were almost empty. I mean, they shut down like 45 seconds early, so like the thing was almost done. But like, come on, it's exact same problem. Yeah, let's hope their next flight goes smoother. And then finally, this is a fun one. China's robotic arm performs test on orbit. The 10-meter-long robotic arm of the Tianhe module of China's space station successfully performed a test of its capabilities, maneuvering the Changzhou-2 supply ship by 20 degrees before returning it to the forward port of the station. The 47-minute operation was done in preparation for CNSA's ambitious plan to complete the station this year, which includes two new modules, Mengtian and Wenxian, two crewed missions, and two cargo missions. The robotic arm crawled to a berth port near the Tianhe docking port before grabbing the cargo spacecraft by attaching an adapter port. While the arm has been used previously to aid EVAs, this is its first use on a large spacecraft. Mm. More capabilities in space. <laughs> okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have a few corrections and a good question, actually. So, yeah, my, my heart sunk a little bit when I saw this, but I realized that, okay, I, I didn't screw up at least by talking about this is related to the Nerva engine and that uh, this week in spaceflight history. And I made sh I, I, I was at least consistent that that was nuclear thermal propulsion the whole time. I didn't accidentally start talking about it as though it was like a, uh, a the Daedalus system or whatever that one is where you're dropping nukes behind you. But um, uh, we did make, though, we spent a lot of time talking about the comparison between that and the electricity generation from nuclear power plants. And those, right, are very different things. The kind of energy coming from a nuclear thermal system versus a nuclear electrical generation system. And so Aaron Saudi uh, helpfully pointed out that that was not uh, the, the best comparison to make because there's different properties. There are different 
things that are happening in each. And so I'll just read uh, the tweet. You confuse thermal power, uh, Nerva 1 gigawatt, with electrical power from nuclear plants, which typically have two to three times greater thermal power output. Uh, you did mention Phobos 1 high was four gigawatts thermal, so bigger than most electrical generation reactors. However, Triga research reactors have a pulse power output of 22 gigawatts, but only for a fraction of a second, right? Um, uh, power is, right, <laughs> energy per over time, so always important to keep that in mind. So I guess all of the stuff that we were looking for on nuclear power plants, that was the amount of electricity they put out, and obviously that's not what we're looking for. Correct. Yeah, or Correct. what we should have been exactly. looking for. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that was helpful. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, I read that tweet, and I was immediately just like, oh, jeez. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Aaron. You know, sometimes you just need a PhD to tell you what you said wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then next, uh, Bill Bobab, uh, wrote us an email and th this is uh, a really interesting question. And I believe I have the right answer, but once, once all the deployment activity settles down, uh, I, sh I really should, I would really love to get somebody from the team on, um, especially after like I've dug in to all these mechanisms, in such detail. Like I want, I want to talk to somebody who uh, has seen them or, Ooh, maybe even somebody who helped design them. That'd be really cool. Okay. But, uh, Bill's question is about the JWST aft momentum flap. And they ask, why isn't the aft momentum flap actuated? Right? Because it, it's, it springs into place, latches, and it's done. And Bill suggests that, uh, one could use an actuated flap, which has a range of possible momentum contributions for each of the three angles going from not enough to too much. Uh, then with the right control loop, actively balancing the solar pressure would be possible. The gyros would never get saturated. If a gyro runs towards saturation, you just have the solar pressure push on the opposite side to slow the gyro. Um, and so a couple of options uh, that Bill came up with was, is it to have fewer moving parts? Um, and also, has it ever been done uh, with an actual satellite that's flown? And I think it might, I don't know if, if any have had actuated flaps. Um, I know that like solar observation satellites, I think the stereos, stereo A and B have uh, a pressure flap. Um, and then of course, uh, is it, is it Spitzer that uses solar pressure to stabilize it? Oh, that it was, an... that was later, the latter half of Kepler. When oh, Kepler's it was gyros started failing. Yeah, they had a clever way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't know if if anybody has done an actuated flap. And, and so uh each of the three angles, I think Bill means each of the three axes, but as built, you couldn't just throw a motor on JWST's flap because it would only give you one axis. And granted, it's the most helpful axis, uh the the pitch axis relative to uh uh, to the telescope. I believe that's the J2 rotational axis. I, I could totally be wrong. I'm well, we had those blueprints with the, um, that was a new word I learned. Ipsum morum. What was that? Oh, lorem ipsum. Yeah. Lorem ipsum. Lorem um, ipsum sic dolor amet. Yeah. But I don't know if, if, if that is, uh, in fact, if those blueprints are accurate, then J2 would actually, uh, or it would be J1 is, it would be J1. I guess. Okay. Yeah. It goes along yeah. the long dimension of the spacecraft. J3 is up. And yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, three axis actuated flap. I mean, really, you'd only need two axes, right? Like, you really start to get into some complex structures. Um, either you need a, a spherical joint, 
uh, that's all on the back, or you need a spherical joint that's basically a gimbal uh, on the back. It just, I, I think, really, the complexity is just far beyond the requirements. But also, the that level of complexity, um, that additional failure point, doesn't actually buy you very much. As is, um, JWST has a really cool observation strategy planned um, that will limit saturation of the gyros by making observations in opposite directions each time. So first it'll look at a target that's below its, you know, its equator. If, if its stable point is, is an equator, it'll look below the equator, then above the equator, then below the equator, then above the equator. And so the, the gyros will actually desaturate themselves in the pitch direction, um, for a significant proportion of their saturation margin. Um, and, and, uh, when I was looking this up, uh, I ran into another cool fact, um, operation, observation, operations, uh, science operations on JWST are event driven. So if an observation needs to be skipped, uh, maybe it failed to lock onto its target. Um, then the observatory will go to the next, uh, the next activity and it has onboard rules, uh, about its saturation margins. I'm sure it has rules about a bunch of its different operational parameters. Um, but in particular, if, if it begins, uh, an observation and it doesn't have enough uh, margin left, if it's going to saturate during that observation, it will actually abort all of its science activities. Or, or it, sorry, it will, um, it'll actually be able to request a desaturation maneuver from the ground, sort of like a, uh, hey, dummies, you forgot. Hmm. Um, or, you know, to be kinder, a, uh, guys, I had to skip through the script and now I might be headed towards a bad place. Do you want to tell me what to do? And what's really cool is uh, in the worst case scenario, maybe we uh, lose contact with the vehicle or maybe it skips a number of observations um, between uh, uh, ground station passes. If that happens, if it ever violates those saturation margins, the rule that the, the vehicle will follow is to abort all science activities unload its momentum immediately at the current pointing. It won't even go to a, a, a more, uh, a more optimal pointing. It'll just where it is, it'll desaturate, it'll fire its engines, and then it'll immediately go into safe mode and wait for the ground to tell it what to do. Um, pretty cool, pretty cool, uh, uh, safe. I mean, like, you know, I love safe modes. This is a pretty cool path, uh, to get into a safe mode. And then, uh, the other, the other thought I had is that if you add a, an actuated, um, momentum flap, you actually overactuate, uh, one or potentially three axes on the vehicle. And maybe it's just because JWST has such, um, such high requirements for pointing precision. Uh, overactuation might just be a bad idea in that case. And uh, like, maybe it's, maybe it has nothing to do with the precision, you know, overactuation in general, uh, is something that, uh, that they avoid. Um, if you have two, two wheels on the same axis in general, you shut one of them off so that, you know, your, uh, what is it? Your, your linear equations become one variable simpler. Um, I, I think, I think that's, 
I think it's a combination of all these things, but I don't think that overactuation is is a point to overlook. I think that's pretty important. It just occurred to me, like when you said that, that yeah, that like if you're moving the flap right, then that creates its own moment. So that's just like one more variable, right? Like I mean, a small one, but is that kind of what you mean? So, not, I mean, not even a small one because it 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 stacks. You know, uh, you multiply each of these actuation methods against each other to come up with your final equation, you know. Mm. Uh, so the, the chat is already dumping in some cool information. Delta V says that one axis of actuation was deemed uh, too risky if it got stuck suboptimally. That makes a lot of sense. All right, Bill, I hope I hope that answered your question. Okay, so this week in spaceflight history, just two winners. We have Chepard Tarkozy and the Greek. And the clue, <laughs> no tower, mo problem. Or problems, whichever. Um, oh, yeah, there was an S one there. <laughs> yeah. So I guess this was a pretty hard clue. In fact, like even the Greeks said that you just had to take a shot in the dark here. So well, it's not an easy clue, but we got some correct answers. Yeah. And what was the event? All right. It was the 16th of January, 1965. It was the uh, Gemini simulated off the pad ejection test 12 failure. So simulated off the pad is SOPA. So- soapy? Let's go soapy. So, uh, Jim Chamberlain, the the Gemini chief designer, thought that Mercury's escape tower was overly complex and too heavy, and he did not like it, and he could do better. So he actually pulled uh, footage of Atlas and Titan II ICBM failures, um, and he decided that the fireball, (laughs) when they explode... Uh, was small enough to allow him to use ejection seats. And, and the reason that the fireball is smaller uh, is because they use hypergolic fuel. So they, they burn faster, like, cl- in, you know, they burn closer to the, uh, to the vehicle. And so he goes, ah, ejection seats are workable. Let's go with ejection seats. Uh, foreshadowing, uh, Max Vajay, uh, the Mercury LES, uh, designer, uh, thought this was a bad idea. And boy, was he right. Uh, Max thought that there was too high a risk of serious injury. For Gemini, Mach 1 happens uh, 40 seconds after liftoff. And Faget, uh, correctly, it turns out, concluded that uh, 40 seconds would be the maximum safe ejection time. Uh, he said, you know what? After you go supersonic, you're not going to be able to uh, use these ejection seats. Turns out he was right. If supersonic ejection was possible anyway at higher altitudes, Faget, and I believe correctly, uh, expected that the crew being exposed to the exhaust plume uh, would be a fatally problematic uh, uh, idea. And uh, later, uh, Faget actually said the best thing about Gemini was that they never had to make an escape. And totally correct. And uh, in fact, after Apollo 1, um, the reason that he was correct was incredibly obvious, right? We, we all know what happened in Apollo 1. It drove a major change in Apollo, where instead of uh, using sea, uh, sea level pressure, pure oxygen atmosphere, uh, they switched to a nitrox atmosphere at sea level pressure. And then on ascent, they bled off that atmosphere and replaced it with oxygen as the, as the pressure went down. Well, Apollo 1, uh, very tragically showed us exactly why a pure oxygen atmosphere is a bad idea uh, when it's under high pressure. Um, Tom Stafford, uh, a Gemini astronaut, uh, later compared an, the idea of ejecting from uh, a Gemini capsule to 
two Roman candles. And like, yeah, that's, that's basically what you would have is two Roman candles, uh, shooting out of, uh, the top of a rocket that's also exploding. Now, what's really, really tragic and what, what punches me in the gut every time is we were so eager to get to the moon that we, we focused on getting successful tests and not getting meaningful tests done. Um, and so, uh, Gemini did do pressurized ejection seat tests, but they pressurized the capsule with nitrogen instead of oxygen. Uh, for real test, what you fly, fly, what you test. Um, if it's too dangerous, I'm assuming that they chose nitrogen because of the danger. And, you know, if it's too dangerous to test an ejection seat with oxygen in the capsule, it's too dangerous to fly it with people inside of it. Um, we are incredibly fortunate that we didn't kill more people getting to the moon than we did. Uh, so the SOPI test campaign was conducted to test center gravity variations and, and their effect on the trajectory of the seat. Uh, and they also used the campaign uh, to optimize the timing of the recovery sequence. Now, these SOPI tests that we're talking about uh, in 1965 uh, were actually the result of a redesign after pad abort test and rocket sled tests that started, the campaign started in 1962. Uh, the first test revealed some very critical flaws with the first uh, version of the ejection seat. They, f you know, nominally fixed them and then retested in 1965 and 1966, I believe. But that that's why uh, we're up to test 12, right? It's pretty high numbers. Some of the, the design changes they made, I, I really skimped on research for this one because I was already exhausted by doing all the research for JWST, uh, forgive me. Um, but they added a, um, a drogue gun, like a, like a, a mortar uh, to deploy the drogue chute uh, for the personnel parachute. And uh, I'm not 100% sure what kept the personnel parachute from deploying properly, but they decided a, a cannon or a mortar for the drogue would, would do it. Um, to be fair, initially they wanted to use balutes uh, for their high atmosphere, low pressure ejections, you know, instead of just going straight to the, the personnel parachute. But, you know, we all know how tough using parachutes at, at upper atmospheres and, and high or low pressure, high atmosphere, high speed uh, can be. And, uh, it, <laughs> the wind tunnel tests, uh, show that the value that they had designed wouldn't open at subsonic speeds and tore itself apart at supersonic speeds. So, uh, okay. You know, like let, let's get to the moon. Um, they also added a three point restraint harness after the initial batch of tests. Um, and the, the seat structure thrust pad, um, quote, required reanalysis and redesign. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Oh, and by the way, not only did they have to redesign the vehicle, they also had to redesign their test methodology, right? I, I said that, that we were too concerned about getting successful tests. Not only did they not test with a pure oxygen atmosphere, they also, um, used test dummies and um, tension the restraint harness uh, to levels that humans would never survive and or tolerate. Um, and then they uh, highly torqued the joints of the dummy. I don't know if that means that the, the dummy experienced torques in his joints during 
ejection that were too high, or if it means that they like balled these dummies up in little balls and then strapped them in and, you know, uh, really yanked on the, on the restraints. I have no idea. I don't care to know. It, it wasn't a test methodology that in any way reflected reality. Fly what you test, test, test what you fly. Um, and, and sort of the, the, the down shoot of all this is instead of fixing the problems, instead of adding a launch escape tower or something, uh, they just lowered the ejection ceiling. Okay. It, hey, this isn't going to work after 40 seconds. I, I forget what the ejection ceiling was. It, it was, you know, thousands of feet. But like, instead of fixing these problems and making a safe system. They just said, yeah, just lower the ejection ceiling. We'll separate the capsule if it's above that. I don't know how they were planning on doing that, but okay. So, uh, okay. Yeah. So that was their plan. If they were above it, they would separate the capsule. Cause I was just wondering like, what would you yeah. do if you're above it? So yeah, no, you yeah. separate the capsule. I, I don't, I, I truly, I don't know what the plan was there. I stopped looking. It was depressing enough to see that we seriously, it, it, it is incredibly, disheartening to me this to see that we could have avoided apollo one if we would have just mm. freaking tested gemini in a realistic way all right so uh on to soapy uh number 12 they, they'd they had a bunch of failures up to this point but this one really drives it home uh <laughs> the left hand dummy the command pilot uh, successfully ejected and was recovered uh, 761 feet downrange. Sounds great. Cool. The right-hand dummy was not ejected. The, the pilot was not ejected. Uh, here's what happened. The hatch actuator is uh, uh, pyrotechnic, and um, it, it blows... Oh, boy. It, it blows the hatch off of the vehicle, and then once it's gotten to a high enough pressure to do that. I believe it like pops a seal or something. Um, but it, it then pressure actuates, um, the rocket catapult igniter. And what happened here is a blow by in the hatch actuator, um, ignited the, uh, the seat rocket early. Like I, I'm guessing that like, I mean, blow by, like there must've been some part that wasn't seated properly. Maybe it was, you know, this pressure seal, uh, just got bypassed. I, I don't know. Um, but the seat collided with the hatch. That's the most polite language we can use. Uh, we, we smashed the seat into the hatch. And, and, you know, to be fair, the actuator was redesigned. And in fact, it was redesigned and the seat used for Soapy 3. Soapy 3 was only four days short of a month later. Like they got this done really quick and Soapy 13 was, was fine, but like quickly fixing a mistake. May, maybe this is a mistake that, you know, really needed to be tested to, to be discovered, but there were so many mistakes. I, I really, I, I am such a fan of early us space flight. I really love each and every one of these vehicles and the computers that, that powered them, but we made a lot of bad decisions and, uh, Again, it's it's a miracle that we killed so few people. There you go. Done. I did Short not... one. I'm out. <laughs> I did not realize the full uh, scope of that, really. I mean, it seemed like... Um, I keep blocking it out of my memory. Maybe it was just memory. a poor... It was, yeah, I, I, thought it, I thought it was just basically a poor choice, but they at least 
took testing seriously, but... <laughs> yeah, really bad. Really reckless. So, David, next week is the 18th to the 24th of January. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. And I think this one will be easier. Uh, next week is in uh, 1978. Uh, the clue is remove the seats, life support systems, heat shield, the parachute, but let's keep the crew rating. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that also seems uh, <laughs> a little reckless, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I am curious to find out. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a common theme there, but this isn't as reckless as it sounds. But yeah, okay. there you go. That's your clue. We'll see. All right. Well, if you think you know what the clue is, uh, send us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck. All right. Finally, let's do upcoming space flight events and three of those. Well, first one, we've got a horizontal launch. So launch. Launcher 1, Above the Clouds, the name of the mission, and this will take place with a pretty wide window from yeah. Wednesday, January 12th at 2200 UTC to Thursday, January 13th at 0100 UTC. Uh, so I guess uh, check on uh, social media or if you have one of these apps that gives you the heads up when there's going to be a launch, uh, keep an eye on that. And so this is going to be a mission to a 500-kilometer circular orbit. Uh, it was delayed. The mission was delayed from... Uh, last December, and um, it's going to be carrying eight research and development satellites from uh, U.S. government agencies, as well as a couple of Earth observation nanosats from a Polish company, Sat Revolution. So again, that's a wide window stretching from <laughs> January 2200 to or January 12, 2200 to January 13th, 0100. And uh, of course, being a launcher one, it will be flying literally out of the Mojave Air and Space Port. I guess that's not that wide of a window, right? That's just like three hours. You're right. That isn't as wide as I thought it was. <laughs> so yeah. Next up on on the 13th, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is launching Transporter 3, which is uh, a dedicated rideshare, and that is going to Sun's synchronous orbit, another one of the transporters. Um, and it has a, it doesn't give the exact number, but dozens of small microsatellites and nanosatellites for commercial and government customers. Yeah. So fewer, th fewer than originally planned. So yeah, a bunch of satellites going to Sun's synchronous orbit, and the launch time for that is 1525 UTC from Cape Canaveral, and that is launching from Slick 40, as it often does. And uh, we got another Cape Canaveral launch coming up. This is really cool. Astra is going to be launching Rocket 3 for the first time from Florida. Uh, this is for VCLS Demo 2. VCLS is uh, Venture Class Launch Services. And the VCLS Demo 2 contract uh, got sent out to all of the small space companies, Astra, Relativity, uh, and Firefly. And uh, Relativity and Firefly have not launched yet. So it looks like Astra is going to be the first uh, company to make good on this mm -hmm. contract. Um, the launch window is Tuesday, January 18th right now. We don't know what time it's launching. The only source that we have is a Spaceflight Now article that is about uh, Transporter 3. And at the end of it, they mention uh, Rocket 3 being scheduled for, for Tuesday. So hopefully uh, it will launch. Um, but yeah, best select Astra. Maybe we're a little biased because uh, we like them. Uh, but yeah, a, a bunch of little tiny satellites flying out of Florida. It's, it just, it's great. Oh, I should mention that is Slick 46. 
Uh, not, not slick 40, obviously. All right. Those are your upcoming space flight events. All right. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Sam, the Greek, Mike, Chevy Terkosi, Colin, Gopal, Delta V, Anderson Inova, Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, Leon Running Man, Kenton, Deathkin, Fiery Dawn, and Cy Kyle for joining us live in today's chat. What Ooh, a take a breath. That's got to be a record. <laughs> <Big> <laughs> Thank you. All right. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.